0: Hey, and we're back with another episode of the Insignificant Others podcast. I'm Brett Featherston, joined as always by Robert Clint. Rob, how are you?
1: Doing well, Brett. How are you?
0: I'm doing wonderful. So our, our guest on this podcast was a lot of fun, uh, Dr. Lindley McAnally. So I guess, is it, would it be Dr. Lindley McAnally or should it be Lindley McAnally Esquire, since she is a doctor and a lawyer?
1: What about Dr. Lindley McAnally Esquire?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's more initials after her name. M D J D. I mean, it's I've never felt so much of a uh underachiever in my life.
1: I've on several occasions felt like an underachiever, <laughs> but sitting next to her, it was exacerbated exponentially.
0: Yeah, so she's she's uh, an impressive human being, uh, a beautiful woman, a great doctor smarters as can be, uh, it, it's amazing her academic career, and you guys will hear it when uh, she comes on here in a few moments, and, and we talk about that. But uh, uh, definitely a a much different college experience than mine,
1: and mine as well. Um, so I've got a couple of things on my mind. What's on your mind, Rob? I went to Austin on a business trip last week, and. One of the topics of discussion with my team and with some of my clients was the fact that Uber and Lyft have yeah. officially been kicked out of Austin, Texas, which I had no idea.
0: And apparently, the DWIs have gone up uh, pretty yes. dramatically.
1: So it got me to thinking about Lyft. And I don't know about you, but you know, we kind of hang in the same circles. We have similar friends. We live in the same community. I don't know a single person who has ever taken Lyft, ever.
0: I've heard of Lyft, but I have never, ever used them.
1: Neither have I. And so, I mean, we've all been in this situation where you're at a dinner party with friends, and maybe there's too much that's been consumed as far as alcohol. And we as adults, we do the right thing. We say, we're not going to drive. We're going to take Uber. You don't even say you're going to take Uber. I'm you... going to Uber.
0: Uber. Yeah, yeah, Uber.
1: It's a verb. It's a verb, just like Google. Yep. So web search is no different than you know Google. Nobody ever says I'm going to Yahoo. I'm going to Bing something, right? <laughs> and then even even when you gonna... DVR a show, right? Nobody ever says I'm going to DVR that. They're going to say, for the most part, I'm going to Tivo. TiVo that, yeah. right? So so Uber has taken on a life all its own, right? Mm-hmm. So. I don't, they I mean, are the Kleenex of, they are
0: rides for hire.
1: No, absolutely. So, it. I don't know why it bothers me so much, but I, 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 I don't know. How does Lyft exist? I mean, I've never been in a social situation where somebody says, "Oh, you know what? My kids. You know, we have teenagers. My kids have a have a mobile phone, and you know, we downloaded the Lyft app onto my child's phone. So my my child lifts from, you know, his friend's house to uh you know, California pizza kitchen or
0: is there any difference between the two? There,
1: I don't other than the fact that I think with Lyft, the Lyft drivers have to put that little curly mustache on the front fender. What?
0: Yeah I don't even know about that.
1: Yeah, no. So they put a curly mustache on the front fender of the of the Lyft driver's car. So I, I'm I want to know the answer to the question, how is Lyft in business?
0: They are definitely the fifth Beatle. I mean, they are you know, the fifth beetle. John Paul, George, and Ringo. But is it who's, geographic?
1: Who's, is it demographic? Is Lyft a cheaper option than Uber? I don't know.
0: It's so funny. Ne- I don't know anybody that's used Lyft.
1: I think I'm going to Lyft from your house back to my house just to say <laughs> that I have taken it. But then
0: you're going to have to download the app, which you haven't done yet.
1: No, I haven't done it, but I'll go through the whole process. So are they this, cheaper, do you think? I. Well, there's got to be something there. There's got to be something there. So,
0: Lyft. Yeah, I, I I have no input on that because I I am probably a uh, heavy Uber user on their heavier side. You Uber Uber. I Uber a lot. Okay. Well, you know the the thing is 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 because I have to go to the airport a lot. I just quit ever driving my car to the airport and I just Uber. It's you know about for Uber X which, oh, by the way, is a great value. Mm -hmm. About 30 bucks to get to the airport. Not bad. No.
1: Not bad at all. The The other thing I want to talk about, and this is painful for me, and that is the subject of failure. And I've had many, many, many countless failures in my life, but this one really stings because it happened today. I took the first exam that I have ever taken since business school. And for me, that is almost 17 years ago. I did study for this exam. It was proctored over a computer, which was the first time that I've ever taken an exam on a computer you where know, the exam was mm-hmm. scored. And I did study, so I don't have an excuse. I'm not here to say that, oh, I never studied for it and I did failed. Did you
0: really study? Or I, I is crammed. I
1: crammed. That was my style back
0: like- how many hours of study? I would did you put say in
1: this? that I have spent, mm, I spent four hours okay. preparing for this exam. And I have some knowledge germane to the subject. So I took, a, I took the Microsoft Dynamics CRM 2016 online deployment, also known as MB2710. Exam.
0: So this is to get your certification for
1: this? Yeah, so so long story short, I've been asked to lead a team of folks uh, at the company that I work at toward gold certification with Microsoft in a product they have called Dynamics CRM, Customer Relationship Management. And so as their general patent, I said, well, I can't ask my troops... To pass these exams. I want everybody else to get certified, but I'm not going to.
0: Yes. But the worst part about that
1: is I, I want everybody else to get certified and I failed. <laughs> yes. I'm embarrassed. I'm actually, I'm kind of at a, I don't know what to do because there were people on my team who failed the exam and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Especially who, after you did. Who had their, <laughs> who sent a mea culpa out, a mea culpa email saying, you know, hey, I failed, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it again. And so now I'm at, I'm at a crossroads. And have I, you communicated with no, anybody nobody on your knows. team? Nobody
0: knows that I failed yet. Hopefully nobody listens to but the I podcast. But I feel
1: like I think the right thing to do is to come clean about my failure. So so get this. So I'm, I'm taking the exam. There are 50 questions. You have to score a 700 to pass. And for the sake of transparency, I scored a whopping 460. So I wasn't So you didn't close. just...
0: Fell you, you crashed and burned.
1: I really crashed and burned. And they give you this nice printout that tells you where you were, you know, what, what you were good at and what you were bad at. And I was really bad at manager or, excuse me, managed server side synchronization and mobile. Device apps. The now, now correct
0: me if I'm wrong, but you had a company prior to this one that specialized in apps. Yes. Is that right? So, so you're so rubbing my face should, in it. So that's kind of a, yes. an
1: area that you should know something about. That's the equivalent of me failing a pizza exam. That <laughs> would be if you failed an exam on Buffalo Wild Wings. Yes. Oh, even better Buffalo Wild Wings and, and beer consumption. <laughs> So they give you this nice printout, and and the the crazy thing is, when I got to the fiftieth question, I still had it in my head that somehow, some way, I had passed this exam, even though deep down inside I knew that I had failed it. So I'm I'm telling myself, Rob, maybe I pulled this out, you know, it maybe I pulled a hail mary out of out of nowhere, and so you you click the answer to the fiftieth question and you, you, you click the next button, which basically displays your score on the screen, and, and it, was this, this, it was almost like in slow motion, and it displayed the, you did not pass. <laughs> <laughs> so the computer's laughing at you. The computer's laughing at me, and I, I was so defeated in that, that, that instant. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm carrying a chip around my shoulder, but you know what? You get back up, you brush the dust off your shoulder, and you take it again. But I think that's a nice segue into our next guest. Yeah. You know, I I get the feeling that uh,
0: Lindley does not know what you're going through. She she may not be able to relate, really, to your situation. Not
1: in the least. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No. Her her education is uh, a little bit more um, superior to mine. And mine. Yeah. But uh, you guys are going to love this. It's Dr. Lindley McAnally. She is a preeminent authority in the area on facial aesthetics, so injectables for your face, uh, skin care. She is, uh got her law degree. She has practiced emergency medicine, and you're going to hear all about it here in a second. This was a lot of fun, and we appreciate her being with us. And up next is Lindley McAnally. Hi, it's Brett Featherston. We're back with another episode of the Insignificant Others podcast. I'm joined by Rob Flint as always. Hi, Rob. How are you? Hello, Brett. How are Hi. you doing? Doing well. Good, good. And our guest today is Dr. Lindley McAnally. Lindley is one of the preeminent specialists in this area on facial aesthetics. Lindley, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you You're welcome. You being here. I'm honored oh, to you. be here. So what exactly is facial aesthetics?
2: Well, facial aesthetics is actually a relatively new field. Um, and it is anything that is used on the face to help refreshen it or help it look a little younger as we age we naturally lose volume in the face and specifically in the dermis and then underlying fat and as we lose
0: <laughs> some of it I feel like I'm gaining volume in my face <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you just put on a few pounds doesn't that help
2: well you know it actually it does help people that have a few extra pounds don't have quite as many rings. Wrinkles. Now, the weight may be shifted down and in in the wrong places, yeah. but they don't have as many wrinkles. But as we age... So is that
1: why you think that I look so young?
2: You look young because you are young.
1: Oh, okay. I thought <laughs> it. it was the fatter face. No, okay. your face
2: is perfect.
1: <laughs> oh, wow.
0: So facial aesthetics is new.
2: It's relatively new. Now, plastic surgeons might argue that point with me because collagen as a filler has been a lo- around for a long time. But the newer facial uh, fillers, the hyaluronic acids like Restylane and Perlane and Juvederm and Botox used as uh, a facial aesthetic, started um, around 2002. So the field has really blown up since about 2002 when Botox Cosmetic was FDA-approved for facial aesthetics. And then shortly thereafter, some of the hyaluronic acid fillers like Restylane and Perlane came on the scene and were FDA-approved. And then the filler market started uh, in about 2003.
0: Okay, so... It, to take a, a little step back, because uh, you've got a, a, an extremely impressive resume. You did your undergrad work at Hendricks College in, in mm-hmm. Conway, Arkansas. Are you from Arkansas originally? I am from Arkansas. A I'm a from- Razorback.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so a girl from Arkansas who you graduated in three years. Mm-hmm. A- and we, we talked about this before we started recording. It's a very different college experience than what I had, especially when you look at the fact that in three years you graduated ranked number one in your class yeah. where did that that striving to, to excel come from
2: Wow that's a good question I almost think it's something you're born with and I'm sure that my parents had a lot to do with that they valued education very much they they instilled a hard work ethic in myself and my three brothers and you know I like the fact I like a sure thing and I like the fact that if if I'm capable of doing something and work hard enough I can achieve it I like that sure thing so and I know I can do the work so uh that that's that always paid off for me
0: And it sounds like that is translated to your children too because uh I don't want to call them overachievers. That sounds almost condescending. Your your children who are in school still mm-hmm. uh, have excellent grades. I mean, they're they're. I think you told me before your son graduated in the top four, five, six in yeah. his class from Highland Park. Is that yeah. correct?
2: He he was number four. Number at four. Highland Park. Yeah, John. Yeah, That's
0: impressive. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, so you. clearly thank that you. that is gone. So. So after college, undergrad college, you went to University of Arkansas and got your medical degree. Yes. And originally That's you correct. practiced emergency and family medicine. Mm-hmm. Tell us about I that.
2: Did. I loved it. I, emergency me- medicine was so fun. It was our practice here in Dallas and I worked with two different groups, Metroplex Emergency Physicians MEPA and QuestCare both and I worked in several of the area emergency rooms and um, I loved the 12 hours on, 12 hours off because I really value uh, my time that I'm not working and I like to just leave work behind and, and be completely free and you can do that with emergency medicine but when you're there it's just very exciting not knowing what's going to come through the door and I'm board certified in family medicine which is very general and you have to know you know kind of a little bit about everything and a lot of what comes into the emergency room is family medicine but then occasionally you get the very exciting you know uh we didn't have level one trauma that all went to Parkland and I mm-hmm. worked at, at centers that were not level level one trauma centers, but you would get a fair amount of, you know, orthopedic injuries and overdoses and heart attacks and strokes and, you know, some,
0: and probably some weird stuff.
1: Yeah. That, that, that's always my question. When I, when I talk to folks like you, like, like craziest situation that you had to tend to mm-hmm. while you were in the emergency room.
2: Well, t- the craziest things happened during my residency, and they happened at Parkland. Okay. So you can see anything and everything there. The thing that comes to mind is, is honestly too gross to, to, to say describe, on the air. yeah. Yes. But another thing that I can say is a hatchet in the middle of somebody's forehead. Oh, my God. <sighs> yeah. So he just came in, you know, conscious, awake, talking. Walked in. Yeah pretty kind of a little drunk but a hatchet right in the middle
1: of his forehead my kids watch that television show like tales from the emergency room or tales from the er i think it's oh, I on seen that. tlc it's 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 so disturbing whenever it comes on i'm like i'm not going to watch this i tell that to myself but then i watch the first case and i can't stop watching it because all the while i'm like are you kidding me like right. like humanity just does some of the craziest things yeah. to 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 get to the emergency mm-hmm. room. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of I've that. I've seen
2: a lot of crazy things and <laughs> truly crazy people. A lot of bugs in the ear and, you know, things, different places that shouldn't yeah. be there. Oh my gosh. So.
0: Appalachian ER. It's funny.
2: But it was fun.
0: So was fun. Uh, soon after you get your medical degree, so within seven years, like, like most doctors, you thought, okay, I, I need to be a lawyer also. <laughs> yeah,
2: a little bit of an overachiever. <laughs> <Yeah. of us. laughs> so you, you,
0: you graduated with honors in 96 from SMU Law mm-hmm. School. So mm-hmm. explain to me. So in this time, you got married uh, to the wonderful Ed McAnally, who's yes. also a doctor. Yes. And uh, how, what was going through your head to say, I, I just finished medical school. I want to be a lawyer.
2: Um, I had the opportunity to do it I always thought it was something that I would be interested in and what really kind of pulled the trigger for me Probably I didn't want to work, just stay in school the rest of my life if I could get away with that. But when I was finishing up with my residency at Southwestern, it was in the early 90s, and um, managed care was coming onto the scene in a big way with HMOs and PPOs. And with that came increased lawsuits, and there was absolutely no tort reform at that time. Still not enough, but there wasn't really any to speak of in the early 90s. And doctors were getting sued for pretty much anything and everything that was not a perfect outcome. And they were, juries were awarding huge damages, like $30 million for something that was a known risk of a procedure when there was no negligence on the doctor's part. There was no medical malpractice there. And that judgment would be, you know, against the physician for the plaintiff anyway. And so I saw a need for there to be someone adept in both languages of medicine and law that could do medical malpractice defense litigation and uh, explain the situation hopefully to a jury to where they can understand that just because there is a bad outcome or not a perfect outcome does not mean that there was medical malpractice and i thought that that would be something i would really enjoy and that that's what initially uh pulled the trigger for me to go on back to more school so which is more difficult
1: medical school or law school
2: uh, the lawyers don 't want me to answer and that 's why that 's part of the reason
1: <laughs> that 's part of the reason why I wanted to ask you that because i 'm sure you know under advice so, of
0: counsel i can 't answer that question this,
2: this is my humble opinion, but there is no comparison okay Medical school is much harder so
1: whenever you hear some sob story about somebody having to go through uh, law school you, you, you don 't really have any sympathy for them because
2: well you know and you just... you
1: can speak from. Experience. A point of experience. Yeah.
2: They're completely different. They're yeah. so different. Um, but med school is just a lot more work. If you're a pretty intelligent person and, and a good reader, which I'm really not. I'm not even that good of a reader. And law school is all reading. Um, I, I would think that you could breeze through law school pretty easily. In medical school, there's just such a massive amount of information to be learned, and none of it is really that difficult. It's just so much. Yeah. So, you you know, you just are studying 24 seven and eating while you're studying and studying on the, at least I was, I, am sure that, you know, people that are much more intelligent than I am had an easier time, but I studied almost every waking moment, didn't sleep much, studying on the way to the test. And it was just constant for two years. Wow. The first two years is, is by far the hardest.
0: Well, the other thing is with medical school, if you make a mistake, somebody dies. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> that really doesn't happen in law school. You might right, lose a right. case, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Yeah, that's somebody true. Dies. Well they
2: don't let you touch anybody until the third year. And then you have attendings and residents watching over you for, for the first two years is is, is just bookwork, didactic, you know, uh, learning and um and then third year's clinical, where you're kind of like Grey's Anatomy, where you're, you're following around and attending and a chief resident. And then the fourth year, you kind of get to go away and do rotations elsewhere if you want. And you're, you're starting to be a little more hands-on by the fourth year of medical school. And it's really not until residency that you have some freedom to actually touch people and possibly do harm. So, so they don't let you get close to people too soon. Okay. Yeah.
0: So... Did you take time off from medicine then from the time you went to law school and the time you started up your current practice, or was there a different practice in there?
2: I I, I took a couple years off. Um, I went straight to law school from finishing my residency at Southwestern. And then after law school, I worked emergency rooms, did a little family practice work as well. And then in 2002, I had my last child, James, and um, I took a couple of years off at that point. All my children were young, and um, I just wanted to kind of step back and and enjoy that and not have any, any other commitments besides uh, really them. And um, I love to work, though. I really, I really think I'm a better mother when... I'm working. And um, so I was kind of getting the itch to go back and do something, but I did, didn't want to do anything that I didn't have complete control over my time because my family and my children are my priority, and I would not have gone back to work had I not found something that allowed me to to have complete control over my time. And at about that time in 2004, a doctor, ironically from Arkansas, dermatologist from Arkansas, was opening up, and that's right about the time that Botox Cosmetic was approved for FDA approved for aesthetic use, as I mentioned earlier, as well as the Restylane, the first hyaluronic acid filler. Y'all look like you're glazing over a little no, bit. With all this. No,
0: okay. no, no. So I've heard so much about Botox. Yeah. I've got a lot of questions. About I
1: just want to say higher Restylane, Hyaluronic a hyaluronic acid. Acid. Yeah, Just say it. Yeah,
2: yeah. you got it. it you sounds go. so much you better did a good job. Says it, by <laughs> <the
1: way. laughs> Don't ask me to do it again. Yeah.
2: But this dermatologist had heard about me through a mutual friend here in Dallas, and he was opening up a clinic called Skin Enhancements, out um, way up in Plano across from Willow Bend Mall up in a strip shopping center by that big Target, that super Target out there. And he had heard from a mutual friend that he that I would be a good person to help him staff that. And so he told me all about it and what he was planning on doing, and I said, yeah, that is something I'd be interested in doing. I'd like to do that. And so I went back and and trained just in facial injectables I trained with with uh, two of the people that helped discover Botox as a, an aesthetic agent. It had been around in medicine for 20, 30 years prior to it. Where did you do that training? I, I did that in New Orleans oh, okay. and in Canada. The Carruthers, Jean and Alistair Carruthers, uh, uh, were the ones that really discovered the aesthetic use of Botox. Jean Carruthers is a an ophthalmologist, the the, the wife, the woman. And she noticed that her blepharospasm patients, patients that have twitchy eye, mm-hmm. is blepharospasm, Botox had been used for years to treat that. And it was FDA approved for that. And she noticed that her patients that she treated for blepharospasm, their crow's feet were smoothing out and their frown lines were smoothing out. And so that's kind of how the discovery of Botox as an aesthetic agent came about. That
0: was one of my questions. So So it was just a fluke thing. Yeah, it really
2: was. Exactly. And her her husband, Alistair, happens to be a dermatologist. So now they travel the world with Allergan, the company that owns Botox Cosmetic, and do seminars and training. And so I had the, the honor of meeting both of them and kind of learning from them, which was cool. And then I went to work at the Skin Enhancements doing, you know, for this physician. And I did that for nine months and loved it and thought, I'm gonna open my own practice so I you know live in the park cities and 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 came back down this way and and opened my own pri- private plant so practice too stupid that.
1: question do you have to get a obtain a special license? Uh, I mean, I know you you studied under those folks, but I mean that's good <laughs> enough to then you know rely on your your you know medical degrees and your training to then start. In mm-hmm. that practice area? No,
2: that's an that's an excellent question because aesthetic medicine is not a board certified specialty. It's not like family medicine, yeah. internal medicine, plastic surgery, dermatology, ophthalmology. It's it's kind of a new thing. Okay. And it's not a board certified specialty. So anybody that was out practicing medicine already in two thousand two, two thousand three, when this field kind of came about Didn't have any formal training directly in that, Hmm. so you just kind of had to get it from people. Some, you know, I trained with some plastic surgeons uh, that had been injecting collagen Mm -hmm. for years. I mentioned that collagen, bovine collagen, had been around for years, and that had been bovine
0: collagen. Uh huh.
2: You had to be skin tested for that, and that's one. So they're,
0: they're they're extracting it from cows.
2: That's correct. That 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 was the old collagen.
0: Hmm.
2: Now that's, wow. that's kind of obsolete almost now because you did have to be skin tested. Several people were allergic to that, but that's the kind of the, the old filler that plastic yeah. surgeons used. And so there were people that had experience doing facial injectables, but not with how the field has become now and not with the new agents. So I just got training from people that had been doing it, the people that discovered the aesthetic use of Botox and some of the hyaluronic acid fillers. And then the rest has really just come from experience. Mm. And, um, I'm in my 12th year of doing facial injectables exclusively.
0: Wow. Okay. So the question I have is because I've heard Botox, it well, look, there's, there's a whole lot of people in our neighborhood that use Botox. Um, but aren't there inherent dangers with it too, or is it pretty benign?
2: It's, it's very benign. It's been around for years, for years, and used in medicine to treat conditions like blepharospasm, which I mentioned, cerebral palsy, cervical dystonia, and and in much, much larger unit doses than kind of the piddly amount we use on the face for aesthetics. So it's kind of had, had already been tried and true with no serious sequelae from use of higher doses. So it's perfectly safe.
0: Okay, and, and how does it, do what it does. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of botulism, right? That's correct. It's a form of botulism. And if you inject it so into wherever you would inject it to get rid of somebody's crow's feet, would mm-hmm. that be right, right by yep. the eye, above right. the eye?
2: It's in the muscle. You inject Botox into the muscle. And so you inject it into the muscle that when that muscle contracts, it causes the overlying skin to crease up. Mm -hmm. So you're wanting to, and they teach us to say relax, but really what you're doing is partially paralyzing that part of the muscle. So when it contracts, it doesn't do so as strongly as it typically does without the Botox. And therefore, the overlying skin doesn't get as crinkled and it becomes more smooth. But physiologically, what's happening is you're injecting the muscle and Botox is blocking there's a there are, there's a, a neuromuscular junction. I'm sure y'all remember that from your <laughs> physiology <laughs> classes in college. But
0: I remember conjunction. Conjunction. Junction. Junction. Yeah. What's your function? <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: But um, Botox blocks the the neural end of that, so the neurotransmitter uh, neurotransmitter. Is that the is, synapses.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right, that's, the that's synapse. A, so I it blocks it. At are you kidding me? No. <laughs> you that's just threw good, out Brad. synapse.
0: No, it's it's kind of a a bad joke that my wife and I have when we're hungover. Sometimes I just like my my synapses aren't connecting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Go so, ahead. So so it blocks the synapses. It, it, it from blocks it at the neural
2: end, so that the the neurotransmitter acetylcholine cannot be. Uh, shot from the neural end to the muscle to tell it to contract. So the muscle doesn't get that signal. So it just kind of lies there a little more flaccid and doesn't contract as strongly. And then over time, those blocked neural receptors regenerate and they reform. And that's why Botox is not permanent. It lasts about three and a half to four months. And then those, you have some new receptors that are then transmitting the acetylcholine to the muscle to tell it to contract again.
0: So how often, if somebody wanted to get rid of crow's feet, how often would they need to get treatment?
2: About every three and a half to four months.
0: Okay, so there's not like a, a lasting halo effect from this. If, if you do it for, you do one treatment, once that muscle, those synapses start connecting again, it, the muscles start contracting and, and the crow's feet come back? Or, or is Yeah, that's,
2: that's a really good question. It, it, it does eventually will come back with full strength, but... Um, but what does happen is there's a little bit of muscle atrophy. So the more you do Botox, the longer you can get between treatments because the muscle is weaker and is it it doesn't come back as strongly as it used to be unless you go a long time without it, and then you'll get your full muscular strength back.
1: So the, the people who come into your, your office, mm-hmm. um, just rough figures percentage, you know, women versus men. Because earlier you were mentioning that, you know, men represent a growing segment of your practice. So what is that today? And, and I mean, I'm, where do you think it would be or will be, say, 10 years from now?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. I probably have about 10% of my patients are men, and that's increasing pretty rapidly.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. So what's occurring, I mean, other than vanity, Let's say men wanting to mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. prolong their youthful look, get rid of wrinkles and whatnot. Um, what, what's prompting them to come in the door? You know, There's no stigma attached to it anymore. Is it education? Is it their wife is doing it and my wife looks great and, and wow, I can see a big difference. I want that to happen to me too.
2: Yeah, I think a couple of things and, 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 and you mentioned one of them for sure. And I think that, you know, when men, particularly young men, think about Botox or fillers, they think about huge, weird looking lips mm-hmm. and are people that just don't look right. And yeah. it's kind of scary to them. But if it's done conservatively, uh, and tastefully and appropriately, you can actually, you know, look a little better, a little rested, a little more refreshed, take off a few years. We're not trying to recreate, we're not trying to, I'm not trying to create something that never existed on your face before. Yeah. I'm just trying to make people feel a little bit better if if, if, if they, you know, are, are want to try that type of thing. And so when when it's done in a way that just makes people look better, but they don't look weird or yeah. different then the husbands are kind of saying, hmm, yeah. you know, you look you look pretty good. I, I might, yeah, I might try, how, you know, how do you do that? I might want to do that.
1: Do you take photographs of your patient? Let's say the first time they walk in the door, I'm, I'm coming in, I'm seeing you for the first time, you take a picture of my face, day one, I go through a treatment cycle, and then you take my picture Again the next time I come into your office? Yes. And again yes. and again yeah, and again? Absolutely. Okay.
2: Yeah. And I have people, honestly, that look better now, ten years after, you know, being treated very conservatively, wow. you know, frequently, but conservatively. They look better now a decade later than they did when I first saw them. Wow. Which is wow. cool. Yeah.
0: Well wow. no, so do you ever get to the point with some clients where you have to say enough is enough i'm I'm not going to do that
2: yeah I, I i have done that and but I'm more likely to not treat somebody that I get the feeling that um is doing it for the wrong reasons or perhaps even has body dysmorphic disorder so i have a, a I have very normal patients
0: I'm, I'm sorry i got <laughs> what is body dysmorphic disorder
2: people that don't have a good concept of what they look like you know they can be very thin and think they're fat they can you know they can you know feel like their nose is not right when there's really nothing wrong with it and they want to do things to it to where it would really objectively look worse but they think that would make them look better so it's just a it, they don't have a good concept of what they look like
0: have you ever seen the TV show botched yes Which is it's it's like a car wreck. You just can't uh, but to look at as you go by. But uh, I've watched that with the kids occasionally, and there's there's people that have body dysmorphic disorder on that very badly.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so patients like that, I I I don't see a lot of those people, and I would not treat them. I would talk to them and uh, you know maybe refer them to a more appropriate type physician, but um, I just have people that you know they're they're this is not the be all end all to them. It's not that big of a deal to do it or not to do it. They're just just normal, you know, moms and working women and men that um, think, you know, if I could look a little bit better or look a little younger or look a little refreshed and not look any different, you know, I'm all over that. So, you know, it's kind of like, the way that working out and being in shape makes you feel, or having a new outfit and looking nice in your clothes, or you know, so so if you look at it like that and not do it because you think it's going to make you happy or solve any problems, those are the kind of people I like to treat. And if I get a sense that that's not the case, then I talk to them for a long time, and and I really do not want to treat those people because there's no making them happy.
0: Right. Right. So, there, there's a lot of topics that I wanted to get into. So, one of them is uh, the work you've done with the local and state school reform. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, you have been featured on on the local CBS station as a skincare expert. So, I did want to ask you some questions on, on skincare. So, sure. Since we all have teenagers, yeah. help me understand the best way to if there is a way to prevent acne with teenagers. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations?
2: Well, the the first step is just keeping the skin clean. And and males are a little bit uh uh worse at doing that than than females are. Even James? And um even James. <laughs> but James, is, James is pretty disciplined. So, uh, and he's just starting to, to get into that, I think. But, um, you know, that's the first step to use an antibacterial soap. You know, Cetaphil soap at CVS is a, is a great start. And, because um, you want to cut down that acne causing bacteria that lives on the skin. So if you can keep that kind of cleared away, the acne won't be produced. Um, but for bad cases, uh, uh, benzoyl peroxide is a good start uh, it'll bleach out all your sheets and towels, and but it does work. Um, and then for, for worst cases, an antibiotic, either topically or orally, is good. And for really severe cystic acne, I, I refer people to dermatologists, and, of course, Accutane is a great drug for that, but it... You know, it has. You have to have liver function tests and things with that. So it's just a stepwise approach, and we have some great dermatologists in town that that treat that through all the stages. And you know, part of it's just living through that through that those adolescent years, um, yeah. but there are definitely things that can make it better.
0: Have you ever gotten into the holistic approach to that? And the reason I ask is, uh, one of my kids, we had a uh, it wasn't bad, but it was bad enough that. She did Accutane, worked for a little while, but didn't work permanently. And Accutane, Rob, you probably hadn't been through this before. Accutane is a drug you take that like almost changes your DNA. It is wow. so strong. You have to get liver tests on a regular right. basis. There, there's a lot of side effects or potential side effects to it. and But it's supposed to get rid of it like for the rest of your life. And it came back. So then... Different dermatologist, and lately she took some kind of uh, probiotic that worked, and it was just an over-the-counter. I think over-the-counter. I'm not sure. She's been to multiple dermatologists, but and it worked great. So I think there's there's something holistic to it, also. And I don't yeah,
2: I agree. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Probiotics, if they work, that's fantastic.
0: So yeah. uh, another question on, on on skincare, and this is from a, a selfish point of view. Uh, what's the best way to get rid of puffy or baggy eyes?
2: That's that's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really can't do that. And a lot of, it's interesting, and it fits with facial aesthetics and, and just the, the loss of volume in the dermis and, and the subcutaneous fat as we age. And that is sometimes puffy Eyes, under the eyes, are either slipped fat pads, which is a surgical problem. So you'd need to have a, blephar- uh, a blepharoplasty which to remove those. You don't need, you don't need to do any, any of this. I think
0: I've had slipped but, fat pads in other areas. In my body.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but a lot of it can be loss of volume that then makes the under the eye area appear puffy. So you get loss of volume kind of in what we call the tear trough. Because when we're young, we have a nice, juicy fat pad in this area. And as we age, and it doesn't really matter if you're fat or skinny, you lose some of this fat in your face regardless. And so as that fat dissipates, then the the fat and the skin that's left can appear like it's protruding because you have the relative area around it that's kind of like, you know, depressed. Interesting. So you can actually, and I do this all the time, put filler under the eyes, in the tear trough area, and lift this kind of tear trough kind of dark circle area up and then the puffy underneath doesn't look puffy
1: anymore. Interesting. I'm never gonna be able to look at you the same now, Brett. You you are now forever puffy eye. I uh, yes. And I'm not even so sure that you asked for yourself. I you know you must have a friend out there that you must have asked that question yeah, on uh, their I, behalf. I, I get the puffy eye occasionally. Uh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I've never I, yeah. never, you wear I well. never notice these things. <laughs> I never. I you're, honest, you're not old enough to notice. Oh my anything. gosh! I, yeah. I, I I I I honestly don't. I, I, I,
0: yes, yeah, so based on this, I'm gonna have to start calling you
1: <laughs> kid, kid Flint. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we try to keep this a PG-rated <laughs> podcast, Brett.
0: <laughs> All right, so Lindley, that's uh, it, your your background in medicine and in uh, facial aesthetics. Got to get that right and. But you've done a lot of work locally and at the state level on school reform. How did you get involved with that? Well,
2: um, education is very important to me. And I think it's a big problem, not only locally, but just in our, in our country. And um, I choose my battles very wisely. I don't get involved with everything. I'm not one of these parents that's always at the school looking for something to do and to get involved in and to... to you know, uh,
1: metal for the sake e- of meddling.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, but this was a big one to me. And, um, what happened was it was on a Thursday and I haven't thought about this in a while, but, um,
0: and, I, and, and by the way, there's a YouTube video out there with you testifying in front of the Texas Senate education committee.
2: Yes. I was aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I was off. I was off. I, I actually I work Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. I take off Tuesday, Thursdays. So it was a Thursday, and I rarely do this, but there was a meeting at the middle school, thrown held by TAMSA, Texas Texans, advocating for meaningful student assessment. And I got this letter in the mail that that told me about this meeting that was coming up, and it it kind of queried, "Have you? You know, do you?" understand what's going on with standardized testing in the schools. Have you, uh, gotten, you know, score results and not really understood what they were? Have you, have you noticed that you're getting them more frequently? And I kind of thought, you know, over the past, since my children were born, since my, my first child was born in 94, um, I had noticed that the testing was increasing, not only at the elementary and middle school level, but also in high school. And so I would get these score reports and not really even knowing what they were. I would just look, okay, where, you know, where are they? And they usually, you know, passed and usually with with high achievement or whatever it's called. But it was happening more and more. And I thought, well, you know, yeah, what is this about? Because it seems to be taking up a lot of our time and I don't even know really what all this means or what good it's doing. So I went to that meeting and I can't think of the girl's name, uh, Susan, somebody, she lives in California now, but she was just a phenomenal speaker. And there is a great, on the TAMSA.org website, there is a, a great video that summarizes all the statistics and all the testing and how Texas has has really gone down with, stand, with their test scores over the past decade instead of increased.
0: So, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can, can you give us a perspective of what the objective of the, what the state's objective was to begin with, to have these standardized tests?
2: It started with the Bush administration and No Child Left Behind. And that sounds sexy and, you know, like that sounds like a great idea. But what it's really doing is is dumbing down everybody to the lowest common denominator. So they're wanting to try to prove that they're doing everything they need to be doing in the school systems so there was this big push for accountability. Let's test the kids, make sure the teachers are teaching them what they need to know. And so they, I really think it was is more of a, a business move. Uh, a big company called Pearson produced the test and did the remediation and gave the test. And And it, it's really comical almost uh, if it wasn't taking up, you know, learning time for our children. If you really know the details of it. But you know, really, these tests take up, I, I don't, I can't quote you the number of days, but a lot of days of school time, and teachers, um, you know, spend time teaching to the test, because they're getting graded on how well the, the you know, students perform, and and it's just like, And then I started asking my kids about that. And they were like, yeah, that's the biggest waste of time. It's crazy. We'll just stop what we're doing. And then they shove a lot of this information that we're not even studying at the time, right before we take this test, STAR or whatever it's been called through the, you know, past past years. And we study for this test that really has nothing to do with what we're even learning in, in school and so it just was a call it just really infuriated me because it's you know I don't want to waste my children's educational time and our tax dollars on something that's useless and is ha, is not doing any good plus we have the SAT we have the act right. we already have standardized tests that can be given we don't have to reinvent the wheel and what really got the group Tamsa rolling was, these are a lot of these tests are high stakes testing, and what that means is you have to pass them to be promoted to the next grade, or you have to pass to graduate and to be able to apply to a four year state college. So, very high stakes, and they're not hurting very many kids in, in our neighborhood. It's yeah. hurting the inner city school kids. And that's really bad because it's it's exactly the people they're trying to help that they're hurting the most. And if you're a freshman, sophomore in high school, and you failed five, you know, uh, star test, and there's no way you're going to make it up. They're telling you you're going to have to go to school all summer for remediation to try to take it again and pass it. You know, what do you think that kid's going to do yeah. around 15, 16? They're going to drop out of school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So that's why I got involved.
0: And, and so what's been the, uh, the, the result of all this? They, I know because they, they've made some changes, and I'm not up to speed. Like you, I, I mm-hmm. see the star test numbers, and I, I look at them. It's like, oh, okay, I, I think. I don't know. Yeah. And, that is, and, By and, the
1: way, that is the most depressing output. And usually I come home from a long day of work and then you you open up the envelope and you're trying to decipher you can't this. even
2: figure out what it's telling
1: you and I, yeah and I, and I consider myself to be you know relatively intelligent and mm-hmm. i'm sta- I'm sitting there just like it makes me like five minutes right yeah. to, to tr- yeah to figure it out sorry i just but is it,
0: it and they changed it i think within the last two years it's not star yep. it's something else but
2: Yeah. Where are they going with it? Well, what happened a couple years ago, which was huge, is with that big push the year that I testified and a lot of other people are down there testifying. In fact, you know, nobody was really in support of star testing. Nobody. There There was, you know, except the people that make money off of it. Right. And um, so after that, um, the Senate Education Committee did recommend and pass House Bill 5, which decreased the number of STAR tests from 15 to 5 in, in high school. So that was a huge change, and that's in, for the state of Texas. And what was interesting to me, over half of the states don't have any standardized testing, it's not federally mandated. At all, it was
0: just a choice for the state. It was just,
2: and Texas had fifteen, which was the highest in the country. And this of the of the other maybe half that had some, they were there were five or less. So we had fifty. It was crazy. It just made no sense at
0: all.
1: That is crazy. Texas, t- Texas, kind of diving in the way that they they have done or did back then was that. Uh, directly associated with the fact that you know no child left behind was kind of Bush's baby and since this is his home state and he was governor that he wanted to make Texas kind of the poster child for this movement.
2: Yeah, I mean that I, I don't know that for a fact, but yes, I would think that that was a large part of it and and I and the idea was I mean I I, I love the Bushes, but I, the idea was a good one and that was Laura Bush's baby too. But um Rob's
0: a Democrat by the way.
2: Yeah, uh-oh.
1: That's why. Did you you notice how it changed? (laughs) How she looked at you. Conservative, (laughs) conservative. It's all right.
2: I think I'm a liberal Republican. We'd probably get along in some areas, Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's that's what started it. But um, it it was just completely out of control. I think it started with the, you know, with with a good intention, but it it just didn't play out that way. In reality, you know, the scores aren't going up. In fact, we've leveled off, if not diminished wow. relative to other states
0: now a topic you and i talked about once at, i think at a basketball game that, that infuriates me one of my friends he his son is just graduated but and his son is absolutely brilliant and i asked him probably when his son was a freshman or sophomore if he had a chance to be valedictorian or salutatorian he was like oh no no way it's like, what do you mean? I mean, because I know he gets great grades. He's, he's really, he is brilliant. His point was, so the whole AP, pre-AP, GPA, the way that that goes, but if you, if you play sports, that's only four point. If you do other extracurricular activities, so his son swam and played in the orchestra. Those mm-hmm. are two four-point, mm-hmm. only four-point. only all you can get. And, and it automatically, I mean, he knew from a very early point that there is no way that he's going to score that high to be valedictorian, for example, which to me is absolutely ridiculous. You're punishing people, you're punishing students that are more well-rounded. rather Correct. Rather than mm-hmm. celebrating the fact that they are supporting the community. And actually one of the members of the school board who was recently elected had a a conversation with him about this too. And it, it affected him negatively. I think he still graduated number two in the class, but Mm -hmm. because he played football, he's a very good football player. It prevented him from being valedictorian. And I, I think that is absolutely still going on. And it's, it's a travesty to these kids that are doing a lot of extracurricular activities.
2: Absolutely. You've done your homework. You're hitting all my hot (laughs) topics here. Yes, that was something that also infuriated me. And I really didn't realize the impact of that until my son, John, who did very well. And my daughter is two years ahead of him, and I can tell you her story in a minute. But he came to me and he said, you know, because he played football. He said, football's really hurting my grade point because he had way over a four point. And I was like, really? Well, why? And he said, because I, I get a four-point in it, and it yeah. pulls me down. And so I got on my bandwagon about that because I have never seen anything so unjust as that. I mean, here you have somebody that's working hard, making good grades, and as you say, is well-rounded, participating in the community, playing sports, being a bill, playing tennis, golf, you know, what have you. And you're forcing those kids to get a four-point. Now, 90% of people can't even understand this argument because right. it's like, what? You don't want to get a four-point? I mean, we don't we don't get it. But if you have over a four-point, obviously it's going to just pull you back. And if you do the calculations, it pulls you back significantly, exactly. even one four-point. And so I uh, spoke at several school board meetings, I don't know if you're aware of this, um, on several occasions about this very thing at Highland Park, and tried to get them to at least let people, let students that wanted to participate in extracurricular activities that were being forced to get a grade, and the the higher academic students that had over a four-point, to elect to do it as credit-only you know, because it's really just oh, an kind of attend pass fail. Yeah, yeah, pass fail, and then I mean, really, it should be pass fail across the board for everybody. But of course, anybody that has below a four point would be like, no, that really that really helps our grade point. We want right. to keep getting that. So it was like, okay, let the people that have less than a four point get the one hundred for the attendance grade in their athletic or their bells or their cheer or extracurricular activity, but don't penalize your smartest students and your best academic students because they want to also be well-rounded it encourages inactivity and extracurricular activities it's crazy and so i made that argument along with some other parents that you know let them take it you know as a a, a non-credit not well not non-credit but non-gpa option you know,
0: so, so it doesn't pull it and, and
2: actually it should kick in if you float above a four four point. It should automatically kick in. But how it stands now at Highland Park, and, and it's always subject to change because even though you don't think anybody would disagree with this concept, there are several people that do and how it's done and what a, you know what you can use the exemption for, etc. But how it stands now is your freshman and sophomore years, you do get a grade for the extracurricular activity. And it's a, it's a hundred. It's a, it's an attendance grade. Um, cause obviously you can't, you know, grade football or whatever. And then when you, if you've participated those first two years, when you approach your junior year, you're allowed to take a non GPA exemption for, I think, one your junior year and one your senior year. I should know this. I haven't reviewed it in a long time. But they did, you know, um, kind of temper that a little bit um, by instituting that new policy.
0: See, I I think it shouldn't be, and that doesn't necessarily penalize the, the, the students that participate in the extracurricular activities, but I think what it should be is the core subjects Okay, you can have your pre AP and AP on that so you can get the four, or five, or five GPA. Mm-hmm. But everything else should be a four, so that it should be an even playing field so that if somebody wants to play football, they can play football and it's not gonna be they're not gonna be treated any differently than than somebody that doesn't want to play in a sport and just wants to uh, I I'm not exactly sure what the other kids that don't participate do, but they should only be able to have AP and pre-AP, in about four subjects a year. And if you're taking six subjects, I think is pretty much what they take, the other two, whatever those are, shouldn't be a pre-AP or AP course. hmm I mean, it's, it's crazy. And
2: so it levels, it levels the playing field it, for the it, non-core it, subject classes.
0: It evens it for everybody. yeah. yeah. Cool. so it's crazy rob and i've told you this before when uh, when my oldest daughter first started we had to go pay 400 bucks to a lady to help us through the process of what she should take and where does she want to go to school and already start planning for that and, and so much of it depends on how many ap and pre ap classes you're taking huh. because if you want to you know to get into the university of texas you need to have i think on the low side Really, you need to have about a four-point to be able to get in. They have taken some people that have a 3-7. They have not taken some people that have a four-point. But it's right. it's in that general vicinity. And if you haven't pre-planned for that at a very young age, you know, going into ninth grade, you can be completely out of it before you even know what's going on.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and not only that, with the way they have it now and with the, with the state schools and the top, what used to be the top 10% rule, I think it's about the top 7% now get offered automatic admission to the state schools. So you get that top, and I'm not sure what it is this year, I'll say 7%. You can have a student that is, say, in the top 8th percentile. And then you have another student that's in the 7th percentile. And the student in the 7th percentile didn't participate in any extracurricular activity. They took P.E. online so that that would be, if you, if you take P.E. online, it's a credit. It's a, it's a pass-fail. Pass so How you, can
0: you take P.E.
1: online? Well, I was going to say, that you, sounds like my current yeah. workout <laughs> schedule. <laughs> I work out <laughs> online. <I know. laughs> but you. It's had, a really good workout, by the way. <laughs>
2: You have these people that game the system so that their grade point will be higher. And then you have someone that say, a bell getting up at um, you know 5.30 a.m. every morning to go practice, going to all the games, participating in the pep rallies, doing everything else they do. And because of being a bell, her grade point dropped a little lower than that person that was in the 7th percentile. So because she was well-rounded, exceptional, participating in school spirit, et cetera, and a great student, she's penalized, does not get the automatic admission. Mm-hmm. Her SAT, ACT then matter because they don't matter if you get automatic admission. Right. It's just they, they don't even pay any attention to your SAT and ACT if you're an automatic admit. So that is the injustice of that.
0: It, it really is an mm-hmm. injustice. The, you know, the other piece that's an injustice, you were talking about cheer before. You don't get credit for being a cheerleader until varsity. So you can only make varsity your junior year. Freshman JV cheerleaders, no credit whatsoever.
2: So is that just like a club sport or something?
0: It's just an activity.
2: But you, So you don't get a PE credit or nope. any? Wow. Huh. No credit. Is that new?
0: Nope. I think it's always been that or- way. Well, I don't know if it's always been that way, but that's the way it is now.
2: Well, that really doesn't make any sense either.
0: No, and you're talking about waking up to, so you can be up at the school at six a.m. to mm-hmm. practice before pep rallies and, and so forth. And, yeah, it's a huge but commitment. No credit whatsoever.
2: That's crazy. Yeah, there are a lot of things that kind of need to be cleaned up that don't make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, so I, I was going to ask where you found time to get involved with all of these things, but like you said, you you work three days a week. So that's it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't really understand how how anybody works more than three days a week. That seems pretty full-time to me.
1: I
0: like the way you think.
2: How can we make this work?
1: <laughs> I think we could find a way. Do we have to go back to medical school? <laughs> yeah.
2: Now, I am working on my days off. I'm picking up the laundry and d- d- cleaning and going to the grocery store and things like that. Or overseeing, so. right.
0: overseeing the cleaning lady.
2: Overseeing <laughs> the cleaning Pay- lady. Paying her. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. So, um... I think that's wrapping it up for us, Lindley. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. This has been really interesting.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been
0: fun. It's so much nicer to be able to look at you than have to look at like Navy SEALs and and people like that that we've had on here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not nearly as... uh, Let's put it this way. The facial aesthetics are much, much better. I hope that
1: oh, our Navy SEAL guests aren't listening to this right now because <laughs> they know where you live. Yeah, that's true. And for the record, I didn't state that. I don't, Rob, you shouldn't have said that.
2: I think I would enjoy the Navy SEALs. <laughs> you no, know, the Navy SEALs
0: are great and, and they can kill me with their pinkies, so I won't say anything more. So our guest has been Dr. Lindley McAnally, uh, again, preeminent facial aesthetics specialist. Here in the area. Thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.